You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Then I saw a few of the team supervisors walk out of Elliott Hall with music. And I was like, something's wrong. And I just waited for it and waited for it. And nothing else like that even happened. So we get through, you know, halfway through. He comes out in the audience to do another trick. And um, he's asking for volunteers. And he walks up to a girl and he says, stand up. And she refused, wouldn't do anything. And he said, fine, be like that. Like just messing around. And then she stood up and like tried to rip the microphone from his hand. And he just pulled it away and kept walking and went to another one. Then this girl, he asked another one and she wouldn't stand up. So at this time I knew they're protesting whatever his act is going to be. I knew something was wrong and they've been coming. I'm just sitting here listening to the Boss Hog of Liberty as I get ready. Um, and they're talking about that Purdue story that we did on the show yesterday. Uh, you're listening to The Chris Spangle Show. I'm Chris Spangle. This is your daily dose of common sense from a libertarian perspective where I bring you the news here on the We Are Libertarians Network. Be sure to check out all of our shows like The Boss Hog of Liberty and We Are Libertarians at wearelibertarians.com. And be sure to support us on Patreon. This being a brand new show, I'm going to say it again. Three ways. If you want this show to continue, I want to know that you're listening Share it on social media, promote it, send me an email, let me know that it's, uh, it's going on. Sorry, but you just heard Mittens uh, pop up. And then join Patreon. Thank you to Jason Doolittle for bumping up his Patreon donation to $125 a month, supporting us. That extra 25 because he values the Chris Spangle Show. So uh, it's how it goes. If you join the Patreon and you like one of our shows, then all, all the shows on the network, Boss Hog, uh, Brian Nichols, Upward, even Tad Talk. Well, eh, not Tad Talk as much, but um, they cost time, money, resources, uh, you know, hosting, stuff like that. So, you know, when you donate to the We Are Libertarians Network, you're helping us with all of our shows. And I, I don't mention that very often because I want those guys to make money on their Patreon. Brian and the Boss Hog guys have their own Patreon, and I want them uh, to, to do well. But, you know, they get support from Dear Leader. Uh, so... Just listening to them and enjoying the show, they have um, Steve Horowitz from Bleeding Heart Libertarians on this evening. So I was watching the Facebook Live as I was sitting here prepping for the show, and he was head of the John Shatner Institute, Papa John, of Papa John's fame. And uh, he, you know, said some stuff, (laughs) And so poor Steve's had to have like five business cards, five rounds of business cards in six months made. Uh, so uh, they finally just removed Shatner, who donated a bunch of money to Ball State where he works. Um, yeah, I don't think a lot of people in Indiana know that like the there's a, a libertarian economic think tank essentially at Ball State and Cecil Bohannon's up there. And we have the Liberty Fund here in Indianapolis and great thinkers like Steve and Sarah Squire uh, based out of Indianapolis, and Mike Munger comes through all the time. So we have an untapped resource, and trust me, I'm trying to break into the Liberty uh, the Liberty Fund and say, can I help you do podcasts? Uh, not not even for personal gain, but you guys have all these events, and you could record them and put them out and benefit the part the movement, not the party. Uh, and I just I don't get anywhere. So I'd love to get in uh, with the, if anybody is listening to the sound of my voice and they work at the Liberty Fund or know somebody who does, then help, help. So I want to help them uh, with their multimedia stuff, you know, not not even for money, just because I like what they do. So th- this is 
I would say that this is a significant thing. Okay, so when it comes to Trump, here's the deal. Most of the stuff that we hyperventilate while watching the news about is bull. Okay, so when we sit there and we see the news and there's a big scandal and there's a collusion and blah, 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 a lot of it is just kind of bunk. The Cohen thing has done what the Mueller investigation the Mueller investigation was always meant to do, which is to eventually kind of trap Trump and get him to commit perjury. Uh, now Cohen, little did anybody in the in the thing. I'm trying to do the show, and Mittens. See, here's the thing, Mittens. I belong to her. I don't belong to you. I don't belong to myself. Uh, she is a she is an authoritarian of the highest order. She's my cat, and uh, she's very attached to me. And so whenever somebody, say a young lady uh, or an age-appropriate lady in the era of Me Too is over here, Mitten sits between us. <laughs> when I'm on the phone, she likes to come and rub her head on things. When I do the podcast, she likes to rub her face on the microphone. And so I don't I, – I usually lock her up, but uh, I've forgotten. So now she's just distracting me. She just tried to lick my face. So she's she's extra, as the kids say these days. So I have um, I have proposed all along that the entire point of the Mueller investigation was not that there was collusion. It was something that people within the government that didn't like Trump and Democrats and the Hillary Clinton campaign all organized was that they 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 took a narrative that happens with every presidential campaign which is a foreign power trying to break into a, a campaign and they chose the scary russians and you know ha- hired somebody to write this dossier and then john mccain and his staff who the 2008 team helped circulate this memo as well and that's how you got the steel dossier and it furthered this narrative and the useful idiots continued the narrative that he was in collusion with Russia, but he was never in collusion with Russia. He's never colluded with Russia in any meaningful way. He can barely collude with himself. Uh, he's constantly flip-flopping. He can't collude with the staff. They don't know what's going on. So I've never thought that the Mueller investigation was about actual Russia collusion. It was never about the candidate or the campaign colluding with Russia to steal the election. Uh, and so what the point has always been is to catch lower level members of the administration, the campaign and Trump and, and Trump himself in perjury or traps of, you know, uh, obstruction. And that's how they were going to eat away at this presidency and the media and the Democrat, the Democratic Party specifically have. And as we have seen from Peter Strzok and Andrew McCabe and people inside of, quote-unquote, the deep state, but basically established Washington, have all coordinated um, whether, you know, I don't think that, like, Jake Tapper gets on the phone with Peter Strzok, but I think, you know, certain memes have power, right? And that has always been the point. So you're now starting to see some of that come to fruition. Uh, I'm not going to talk about Paul Manafort today because I don't think Paul Manafort and his conviction on eight of the ten counts is even relevant to anything that's happening in politics today, except to highlight how swampy the swamp is. So next time I talk to Rob Cortell of the Swamp series on We Are Libertarians, we're going to talk about how swampy uh, uh, Rick Gates and Paul Manafort are. But, you know, trying to smear... Trump with Manafort is silly because he had nothing to do with the twelve-year-old charges that are, he's being uh, put, you know, possibly facing sixty years in jail on. But 
Michael Cohn is different. This is the chickens coming home to roost, and this is a little more serious because I I believe that the president did commit a crime, and you know I, I will lay some of that out. But when when it comes to campaign violations, it it is a great exercise in politicians don't follow follow their own rules, and most campaign violations are felonies but they don't get charged that way they you might get a misdemeanor or a fine or not prosecuted at all you know i've seen federal and state candidates just have their fines waived for instance and so politicians usually don't get dinged on these rules and i don't know how far like the democrats are going to try and take this all the way to impeachment but in reality, they're not going to start enforcing these rules and making campaign finance violations an issue because they don't want the Huffington Post and the Daily Caller looking into campaign violations of both parties. So <laughs> they're never going to really make this too big of an issue. But So if you don't know what happened with Michael Cohn, he is his, for, for about a dozen years, has been his fixer. And, my, and Donald Trump on Twitter said, uh, don't hire Michael Cohn as a lawyer. <laughs> Um, you know, he is a shady character who was just the quote-unquote fixer for Trump. And he was the professional prostitute payer-outer. <laughs> he was just a sleazy guy. And here's the crazy thing about this is Michael Cohn is the guy that, like, said, I will die for Donald Trump. I will do anything for him. And so if there was anybody that Donald Trump should be loyal to, it, it would be... Michael Cohn because he was so loyal to him and he knew so much and so it's just been crazy and mystifying as we mentioned on We Are Libertarians like why is he not helping this guy because he knows too much like what is the deal like and there's this weird thing where Donald Trump has to wash himself clean of all of the things that he did wrong by blaming other people and if he gets too close to this person then somehow he is going to be held accountable for his own actions. But if he keeps distance, then he can blame Michael Cohn for everything. Uh, and that's just not how reality works, although I'm not accusing Donald Trump of living in reality. Um, so uh, Cohn basically was brought up on tax evasion charges and a single count of bank fraud and declaring in a federal courtroom that he lied on a home equity line of credit to obtain money to pay off Stormy Daniels. So early October of 2016, the Stormy Daniels and another person, like they, they started chirping and they wanted money. And so the National Enquirer, which is owned by a friend of Donald Trump, ended up buying their story at the direction of Michael Cohn. And he said, don't worry, I'll pay you. And so he went out and took out a home equity loan and lied on the form to get this money to then pay off uh, the the National Enquirer for buying those stories, buying the silence of these two prostitutes. I mean, I'm sorry, not prostitutes. <laughs> Stormy Daniels uh, is a play is a, uh, a stripper now and a porn star. Uh, although I, the reason I have that in my head is I I know too many things uh, <laughs> because of where I work. So, and then Karen McDougal, who was just a playmate. So. I apologize. I did not mean to smear Stormy Daniels and call her a prostitute in public. Um, so, uh, so, anyways, she, she, let's be honest. Why did she have sex with Donald Trump? It was so eventually she could shake him down for money. Like that is that is what I am alleging. That is what I am uh, not alleging, but that's my educated guess. 
so I just don't think that she sits there and goes, Meh, I really want me to get a, I want to get a piece of Donald Trump. Mm. No, I think she's, she had this outcome in mind, right? It's that little chit in your back pocket that you can cash in when you're, when you're getting low. Uh, so I really don't find her or Michael Avenatti or Michael Cohn or Donald Trump or any of these people to be sympathetic characters or moral people. Um, so that's why I don't think a lot of people are taking any of this serious. Uh, so basically Michael Cohn then gets paid in chunks, like $30,000 chunks. He sends an invoice into Donald Trump and he pays it out. And so this is a key part. So why didn't Donald Trump just directly pay for these stories? I think probably because he always had some layer of protection between him and these payouts. He's probably done this forever. Uh, that's why it happened so quickly is they, you know, again, he's a professional. Michael Cohn is a professional, you know, stripper payer outer. <laughs> and that that's that's his title. He should put that on business cards. And, you know, Donald Trump didn't want to get his hands dirty, but it also smacks, as Lanny Davis, the the attorney, the former Clinton attorney now working for Michael Cohn, said, you know, it smacks of Donald Trump knowing he was doing something wrong. So Cohn, in court, basically says, uh, the, the document says, and was uh, he lied on a home equity line of credit to obtain money to pay off Daniels in coordination with and at the direction of a candidate for federal office, being Trump, and that he did so for, quote, the pur- principal purpose of influencing the election. In other words, as Michael, uh, is this Michael Garrity? I'm sorry, I'm so tired, like, I am beat today. Jim Garrity at National Review writes, in other words, Cohn has now effectively testified that Trump conspired with him to commit a crime. Um, for his own guilty pleas, Cohn is now facing about four to five years in prison. Uh, Cohn, uh, Landy Davis said, Cohn stood up and testified under oath that Trump directed him to commit a crime by making payments to two women for the principal purpose of influencing an election. If these payments were a crime for Michael Cohn, then why wouldn't they be a crime for Donald Trump? And the truth is, he's right. So if the threshold for an individual limit is $2,700. And so I, as a donor can only give $2,700, and you, as the candidate, can only accept $2,700. So that's the limit. Presidential campaign finance violations are not new. Uh, You you go back to 1996 when uh, Bill Clinton, you had the Chinese uh, government basically donating to Bill Clinton's campaigns, and then all of a sudden, magically, you had uh, nuclear secrets being declassified. Uh, and, and they were staying at the White House. And so you had members of the Clinton administration that, and, and the campaign that went to prison, I think. Uh, they were at least convicted, but it never got to Clinton. And then, you know, most famously, you had John Edwards in, in 2008 basically do the same thing where um, Riley Hunter got a million dollars in campaign funds to cover up her story. And, and eventually it came out. Um, Barack Obama at one point had... $2 million in undeclared funds that they caught and had to pay a massive fine in for the 2008 campaign and $375,000. But the difference, uh, as Ben Shapiro noted, and Shapiro is going to do a better job of breaking down all the details and the legal framework of all this because he's an actual Harvard-trained lawyer, and I am not. I am a talk show host. <laughs> so, uh, so as much as some of you may hate Ben Shapiro, uh, he did have a good breakdown of the legalities of it all. 
But as he pointed out today, this is the only time where one of the one of the people involved are naming the president as the person who helped conspire with this. So that's going to be a big issue. Um, so uh, this is here's the deal. Everybody in politics. They don't take campaign stuff like they don't take campaign violations seriously. So everybody takes like the donations part seriously, but they don't take seriously the like the fines, right? Like if you get dinged, you're probably going to get out of it. And it's a great it's a great example of the rule of law. It's a great example of where you know do laws mean anything? And I think that's part of how I look at this. I look at this and I go. If I were a libertarian presidential candidate, if I were Gary Johnson and I were in the same boat, I would I would have no recourse. I would get dinged. They'd throw the book at me. There probably wouldn't be any leniency. The law is the law. And so Donald Trump broke the law. And so if you believe in the rule of law, you you have to look at this and, and say he's a criminal, quote unquote, for at least this part. He did commit the same crime as Michael Cohn. And why is he not facing the same penalties for that same action? And I, I certainly agree with that. And I don't believe in selective enforcement. And I think that the FEC and um, the people that actually charge, the Justice Department that actually charges these FC, FEC campaign violations, they, you know, they're very selective in how they manage any of it as well. So I don't believe that there should be selective enforcement. So the problem now becomes how do you charge the president of the United States with a crime and is this crime something that you can impeach them on? Every Democrat in the world is going to say yes. But the reality is that, it, it, as Andy McCarthy wrote in a piece on National Review, which I, I've put in the show notes, you know, um, let me see. Let's split some legal hairs, he writes. The media narrative suggests that these payments violate federal law because they were made to influence the outcome of election. And I personally agree with that. I think that there's no doubt that if you read the, the court document uh, on this, that it was it was to make sure that this didn't come out before the election. So it was a hush money to make sure that this didn't come out. He says, and Andrew, Andrew McCarthy is a former federal prosecutor. It, it is not illegal to pay hush money to two women. It was illegal for Cohn to make an in-kind contribution, which is what the payoffs were, in excess of the legal limit. So, for instance, what an in-kind contribution is, is that if you show up to the office uh, of a, your favorite candidate and you say, here's a pallet of pens. I know you're going to need a lot of pens. I wanted to give you this gift of a pallet of pens. It cost me $1,000 to buy they have to claim that as an in-kind contribution. So you can't just be, where did these pens come from? So every dollar really has to be tracked. And on the federal level, it's like $500, I think. It's it's a fairly low level. And here in Indiana, it's like $100. So you you really have to keep track of every single dime that is spent on a campaign, and you should. It, and you should make that transparent, and you should show, here's where people are coming from. I think... As libertarians, we recognize that campaign contributions and the money that people give to campaigns are political speech, but there is also some level of transparency that ought to come from that. So the way that you govern all of the corporate crony capitalism is by transparency, 
and making things as equal as possible through transparency. Um, so you can't exceed $2,700, and they can't accept it. Uh, the latter illegality is relevant because Cone formed corporations to transfer the hush money. So, um, so he ex- he exceeded. Uh, it, it is illegal for corporations to contribute to candidates, and so he uh, basically used corporate money as an in-kind contribution, which is a no-no. Um, so Trump could, he writes, could have done it himself. Trump c- can give as much money to his campaign as he wants. Uh, and so he didn't because he didn't want to get caught. The Justice Department basically has has guidelines that they can't indict a sitting president and because the president himself is in charge of the judicial branch in the executive branch. And so they're not actually allowed to charge him with a crime. So uh, this is either going to have to wait until he is no longer president or it is going to have to um, be an issue of an, an impeachment and then it goes before the Senate for actual removal. So as Andrew, Andy McCarthy writes, the further removal misconduct is from core responsibilities of the presidency, the less political support there will be for the president's removal from office. This is critical because impeachment is a political remedy, not a legal one. The way the framers had designed the process, which requires just a, sam- a simple House majority to file articles of impeachment, but a two-thirds Senate supermajority for removal, no president will ever be removed from office, absent misconduct egregious enough to spur a consensus for removal that cuts across partisan lines. Such mis- misconduct would surely have to involve either an abusive power involving core presidential powers or an extremely serious crime, if unrelated or tangentially related to presidential power. The conduct here is not of the egregious nature that rises to high crimes and misdemeanors. It is an infraction committed by many political candidates and often not even prosecuted. And that's that's the key argument, is that because this enforcement of this particular violation is so selective that you can reasonably argue that this isn't any kind of gross abuse of power. Yes, he was trying to influence the election just as, you know, Clinton or anybody else who tries to fudge their numbers does. So, but it's not perjury, for instance, lying about their duties. Clinton was president while that was taking place uh, during 1998. Uh, so, it it isn't a it do- doesn't rise to the level that it will see impeachment. So, and that, I think that's probably where it will end up. I think if the Democrats take the House, they will run with this. They will try and turn it into something because they're desperate to get rid of him. Uh, so so we'll see. Uh, they, uh, the, the writer, the political writer for the NBC News, I was, I was in bed looking through stories last night, and Jonathan Allen, who wrote a biography on Hillary Clinton, <clears throat> so uh, wrote, there hasn't been a darker moment for a president or the presidency since Richard Nixon resigned on the verge of impeachment in 1974. Um, Michael Cohen, blah, blah, blah. And then Paul Manafort. And then this unrelated congressman. And then another unrelated person. And you just go, 
this is why people think you're ridiculous because you're you're equating this to like this is something that Clinton did that every campaign, every presidential campaign, I bet if you went and looked has some of these violations. And so when you just overblow this or overstate your case to the point of ridiculousness, then people stop taking you seriously. And so this isn't the dark this is a very serious matter for the president and I think it's going to be this is a genuine thorn in his side now. So it isn't like the collusion stuff where people who are – I'm fair to the president. I, I'm not necessarily uh, all in or all out on him. I'm not a never, never Trumper, and I'm not – I think I, I would say 70% of the time I think he's a buffoon who is bad, and then 30% of the time his administration does something good. So I, I try to be fair to him and be open-minded because I know what the press is like, and I think he is not getting a fair shake. And so the Russia stuff, whenever I hear that, I roll my eyes. But this is something where he, he broke the law, and he's committed a crime, and he's now going to face issues surrounding the violation of that law. And it wasn't his campaign. And, you know, like with Obama, it was just a function of the campaign not doing something. This is criminal intent. Uh, and so they'll have to prove that. They'll have to prove that he had criminal intent. Obviously, Michael Cohn is no reliable witness. I mean, he's somebody that is shady as the day is long. So, so we'll see where it goes. We'll keep an eye on it. But that's that's what's going on with that. And speaking of that, we're starting to see it creep in about how awful Mike Pence is. Uh, and I'm from Indiana, and uh, I can tell you, Mike Pence was. Someone asked me, they go, what, "Who's been the most? Who's been the worst governor in the modern era?" And I was like, "Hmm. All right. Well, Mitch Daniels was great." You know, Kernan and O'Bannon and Bai, they were okay. They didn't do great because they were fiscally irresponsible. You know, everybody loved Doc Bowen. I think it's Mike Pence. <laughs> and it's true. Mike Pence was pretty much the weakest, if not uh, the most incompetent governor that we've had in the modern era. And he is um, he's a genuine person who believes what he says and says what he thinks. Uh, he is... And take that for what it's worth, good or bad. I mean, if you hear him say something, I think he genuinely believes that. I do think that he he is far too ambitious. He's far more ambitious than his brain has power for. Um, I just don't think he's a very intelligent person, um, but he's smart enough. Obviously, he's vice president. Uh, and so he is a very ambitious person who is capable enough. And if he became Peter, it'd be the Peter Principle on steroids if he became president. Um, so Jeremy Scahill in The Intercept, who is fantastic on issues of foreign policy, wrote one of the most dangerous things I think I've ever seen in my life. And it's, and it's titled, Mike Pence will be the most powerful Christian supremacist in U.S. history. And he basically goes on to write about how Mike Pence is a dangerous person because he, in the way that that white supremacists see the white race as superior. He sees Christian people as more uh, as superior to all people who are not Christian. And that's just not true about Mike Pence. He is not a dominionist like Gary North or other people. He is, he is a traditional Republican and an Orthodox Christian in the way that the modern evangelical movement views it. And to call him a Christian supremacist and introduce this new term that now the left is going to start calling people of faith Christian supremacists. It, it, in five years, that's it, you won't be called a Christian, and it won't be good to be called a Christian because you'll be called a Christian supremacist. And it, and having faith in Christianity will now be 
equated with racism and institutional racism in America and and it's just really a dangerous idea that's being introduced into the lexicon of American politics and Jeremy Scahill who is uh you know somebody that that I respect on a lot of issues I'm sitting here going do you not realize that you're now weaponizing religious beliefs and if you didn't like it when Christians and and Republicans did that to people of Muslim faith, then why would you want to do that back to Christians? Because all you're really doing is just feeding into Mike Pence and Donald Trump's uh, view of uh, the war on Christianity, and you're just feeding that. So it's it's a very stupid, stupid term, and it's unfortunately going to catch on because it it feeds into this idea in the far left, which is now becoming the left, uh, that anybody who is white, right-leaning, like, listen, libertarians, you can smear other people and call them left libertarian all you want, but if you're a libertarian who believes in ideas, to these people, you're the right. So it doesn't matter how much you agree with them on pot and gay rights and, and war. Like, the days of there being a left and a right and a libertarian framework, those days are over. Like, we are now consolidating things to the hegemony of thought that social media produces into tyranny versus versus big uh, tyranny versus freedom basically uh so that's why i find like you know joshua smith is real pissed at me for my comments on we are libertarians today but the truth is is when you when you try to create these false binary choices and then you try to attack people that are on your side like do you not realize the the task before us like there are people who want to call us libertarian supremacists <laughs> because we believe in traditional classical liberal values we're all racists which is just a bizarre thing and those are the people that are our enemy those are the people that are trying to squash freedom it is not people like the libertarian socialists and the 13 people that you know are, are running as libertarian candidates that just have a different view on property rights like that so i just look at it and i go this is so wrong-headed we're fighting the wrong people when you've got people who are trying to, I, I don't know, Jeremy Scahill is doing something incredibly dangerous, and uh, it's very sad that that's going to end up catching on. Uh, so to wrap up with a couple of news stories, Wells Fargo, Harry mentioned it yesterday but Wells on uh, We Are Libertarians, but Wells Fargo closes Florida politicians' account due to marijuana donations. And so Wells Fargo, the largest, fourth largest bank in the U.S., fired Florida Agricultural Committee commissioner candidate Nikki Fried as a client this month because her campaign had received donations from quote-unquote lobbyists from the medical marijuana industry. Uh, The Marijuana Policy Project commented saying this is yet another clear signal to Congress that they need to address the banking issue for the cannabis industry. Uh, And so MPP itself has had its account closed by PNC. That happened last year. Uh, And I thought this was a great um, line uh, when asked if that meant the company would be canceling the accounts of members of Congress who bank with Wells Fargo, Gray responded, the policy applies to everyone. So now it's open season. So if you believe in pot rights and they're going to cancel the accounts of people who have accepted campaign funds from lobbyists in the marijuana industry, anybody who's lobbied against mar- marijuana, go find the candidates that they donated to. It's, it's just, it's uh, like it, major corporations that are beholden to shareholders have now been put in the middle, like MasterCard and Patreon. 
you know, getting beat up or PETA beating up on Nabisco over animal crackers. It's like the boardroom is now it's every the left is weaponizing every single aspect of American life. And the the conservatives are responding in kind. I remember in 2003 when I was a baby Republican and we used to watch the left do this kind of stuff. And, and I would hear people say or read on on AOL boardrooms. Uh, we need our own task force. And then, you know, Andrew Breitbart came along and created that along with Drudge. And now we're living in hell. <laughs> this is just hell. Uh, and finally, Gen Z is set to outnumber millennials within a year. So they're going to Gen Z, which uh, basically like a 2000 and below. Uh, I'm a millennial. I'm at the top end, 34. 34, 35, down to 22, 23, 21 depending on who's who's actually counting. And everybody younger is Gen Z. They make up, uh, they're about to be 32% of the population in 2019. And boom, and uh, millennials like myself will be 31.5. So I will be looking forward to them getting all of the blame for everything in the way that millennials get. We just, Hooters is going out of business. Uh, and so somebody at work today, a boomer, was asking me like, you know, is this true? Do millennials not like boobs? And I was like, it's not that mill- millennials like boobs fine. But for us going into Hooters is uncomfortable. So, like, I, I don't feel like it's appropriate. You know, like, as a, as a modern man in the dating world, like, if you're, if you're engaging in certain activities, you ask for consent multiple times, you know, in ways that don't ruin the mood, but you still, you know, are you, uh, you know, and, like, you have to do that. Or, you know, I have several female friends who are very, like, I've been on uh, four dates with him, and he hasn't kissed me. Does he not like me? I'm like, no, he's waiting for you to give him a signal of interest because he respects you, and he's trying to be respectful of you, and so he doesn't want to touch your person without you making it very clear and giving signals that you're interested in that or you making the first move. And so guys are very – they're much more respectful of women, you know, regardless of the the trolls and the – asshats on on tinder who send horrible things but i think by and large um i think men are trying most decent men are trying to respect women more on the dating scene or just in life and and trying to starting to see women as people i i guess is the way to put it and so when you go to hooters it just doesn't feel right it just i don't know it's like okay and so that it's not because millennials are not going because it's creepy and we don't want to feel creepy so it may have been a great idea in the 70s, but not not anymore. So and obviously all the women that work there work there voluntarily. And so it's not, you know, it's not any kind of forced thing. And it's, you know, it's their choice and they make great money doing it um, and, and they enjoy it. But that's why it's not, millennial dudes love boobs, right, mittens? Yeah, she says, right. So, all right. Thanks for joining me here on this episode of The Chris Spangle Show. Please be sure to share it. Uh, and we will uh, see you tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow, a change of plans. Rob has a sick wife, and so he has to attend to the wife. So Galt and uh, Tad will be with me on We Are Libertarians, which you can get at wearelibertarians.com. So we'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>